Good morning, HCC. My name is Josh, as Brian said. Uh, I hope you all are doing very well this morning, uh, or as well as you possibly can be doing today. I know uh, doing well is kind of a relative term these days. Um, but wherever you are at, whatever you are doing as this finds you, I hope you're doing, doing very well. Um, this is a, a tricky time for all of us. So that, that doesn't need to be said. Um, but even things like this, this is a new way of communicating for, for me, and it's a new way of communicating for a lot of us. And so uh, it, it presents its own challenges, but it's actually kind of, kind of fun in its own way too. And I, I have grown even just in the last month or two to really appreciate this kind of thing, uh, whereas maybe I wouldn't have wanted to do it before. But um, now it's, it's, it just gives us an awesome opportunity to kind of maintain our connection with each other and to really maintain the, the practices and the habits that, that we value as churches, that, that we say, you know, these are the things that, that inform us and shape us, and when we get together, these are the things that we do uh, that help us become the community and the individuals that we want to be so that when we, when we do leave here on Sunday, uh, we live the lives that, that God has called us to live. And so for us to be able to continue to do that, even in, in this kind of a way, it's just it's really cool. And uh, I am honored genuinely to be able to take part in this. And I, I hope that, uh, that something I say this morning uh, resonates with you and can point you to Jesus in some way. And that's, that's the point of the whole thing, right? So with that in mind, I'm gonna say a prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll keep going. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this time. I, th- I thank you for this season, this season of darkness and uncertainty um, and, and just all the, all the difficulty that, that we face in the middle of all this. Uh, but God, we are grateful for the way that you show yourself faithful. We're grateful for uh, the way that we're able to still uh, be the church and be your church and be family for one another. Uh, God, today, may you, may you speak to all of us today. May you speak through, through the words that I have to say or through, really through anything, through the songs, through anything that may happen uh, this morning. And uh, God, may above all, may you be glorified in all of it. It's in your son's name that we are here and that we pray, amen. Uh, if any of you out there pay much attention to the church calendar, you will know this, we are currently in the Easter season, and that probably shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody because uh, we just celebrated Easter, so it makes a lot of sense, right? Um, this is a season that, again, not surprising, is, is marked uh, in a lot of kind of liturgical worship services all around the world. It's marked with themes of, of resurrection and, and new life and victory and, and celebration um, and, and really just kind of this, this recognition of the eternal love and life and light that we all inherit together in Christ. So naturally, today, uh, I want to talk about the book of Lamentations. That, that old page turner, right? Um, I'm gonna be pulling a lot from uh, some recent sermons I've heard uh, with, with our church during Lent and during the Easter season. Uh, these are things that, that have really kind of shaped me in the last, the last couple months, and I, I'm excited to share them with you today. Um, and, and because we're talking about Lamentations, I know that's a book that's, that's very dark at times, and, and some of what we'll, we'll deal with today is dark, and I hope, I guess this is my, just my disclaimer up front, I hope that uh, this isn't too, too sad of a time together. That's certainly not my intention, and, and I, I don't think that's where we're going, but um, I guess maybe I say that to say, gird your loins, because we're going to talk about some, maybe some hard things today. Uh, I want to start by making a couple statements that I believe to be absolutely true. The first one is this. Following Jesus is amazingly simple. You go through the New Testament and find really a few basic requirements uh, to being a follower of Jesus. There's a lot more there, but, but you could pick out a few things, and most churches and traditions have already done this for us. Uh, things like believe in him, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, I recall a, f- a couple months ago, Brian uh, preaching here about kind of the new command that Jesus gave his disciples on the night of the Last Supper, that, that, that they love one another as he's loved them. Uh, things like that. If, if you are genuinely trying to do those things, I think we can all feel comf- comfortable and confident saying, you are a follower of Jesus, we, you're a Christian. Um, it's really that simple, it really is. The second thing I believe to be true is this. Following Jesus is amazingly complicated. The longer I live, the more I find this to be true. The way of Jesus is a way where the last are first. It's a way where the servant is the greatest, where strength is found in weakness. The way of Jesus is a way of attaining through giving away, a way of victory through defeat, a way of life through death. Right, that's pretty complicated. Those are really complex ideas and statements to have to make and and to try to make sense of. Following Jesus often means taking really two ideas that on the surface don't really fit together and trying to hold on to them at the same time and and balance them or or make them fit in in some way and it's not always an easy thing. In fact, it's very rarely an easy thing. Uh, One of those sets of ideas, and this is what I wanna lean into today, is that the way of Jesus is a way of rejoicing and lamenting. I am convinced, and uh, this is hardly an original idea, but I am convinced that we as a people in America love to win and we hate to lose, right? This is nothing novel. It's probably true of most people throughout the world, but I would suggest that maybe in America we're even more into the whole winning thing. Uh, It's a part of our national identity. It's the story of the birth of our nation, you know, this victory over the the oppressive rulers and the regime. Um, We're a nation of achievers. We're a nation of succeeders. That's not a word, but you know what I mean. Uh, According to the philosophers at the Home Depot, America is a nation of doers, right? We accomplish things, we climb the mountains and and we win the medals and we build the biggest and we do it the loudest and we lead the way for all the world. We are a culture that you could probably comfortably say is obsessed with displays of victory. Uh, You may not not find this as interesting as I do, but uh, the the five highest grossing domestic films of all time in the United States uh, are, are these and they're all recent, there's a number of reasons why, obviously, why they're on this list, but uh, they're these. Uh, The Force Awakens, the Star Wars movie, uh, Avengers Endgame, Avatar, Black Panther, and Avengers Infinity War. Now, if you are not into nerd-type culture, you may hate all those movies, and you probably didn't contribute to their their reign at the top of the the box office, but um, what is notable about that list is that each of these films tell a story of a hero or a group of heroes on their journey to overcome just incredible odds and to save the day for themselves, for their nation, for their world, for the universe, and spoiler alert, uh, every single one of those, except with the exception maybe maybe of one of them, every single one of those ends the way we want it to win. It ends in a heroic victory for the good guys. And I think it's no coincidence that these are the stories we're most willing to shell over our money to see. These are the stories we most want told and we most just enjoy getting, getting wrapped up in. We love the dream team. We love the miracle on ice. Uh, we love having our flag on the moon, for goodness sakes. All the way from Charlie Sheen to Donald Trump, we love winning. And we make no apologies for it, right? No time for losers, because we are the champions of the world. Never mind that that was written by a British guy. Uh, and all that's great. I find uh, I charm in some of that cockiness. Um, it's great to win. I identify with all that. I, we all love to win, right? It's great, except 
that same attitude, almost inevitably, to be fair, has a huge influence on how we understand our faith. Such an influence, in fact, that I suspect it sometimes warps our understanding of our faith quite a bit. But what do I mean by that? How is our faith shaped by victory, by triumph, by success, by confidence and courage? Well, uh, pretty naturally, honestly, you don't have to look very hard at all. Uh, we, we just look in the Bible first and we're very quick to, to see the Bible is, is full of stories of courageous triumph. It's full of exhortation to persevere and to be bold in the face of the enemy. It's full of reassurance that through Jesus, death is defeated, that we have victory over sin and fear and things like that. There's this crystal clear narrative of winning and we're drawn to that as well we should be. We write books about how to overcome and how to persevere and how to live your best life, how to win at this, this whole thing. As a music leader, I think probably 90% of our songs that, that we, we cherish and that we pass down, that we sing, are about at least the Easter story in some way, or they're about how when we turn to Jesus, the, the bad things are gone and the good things are here. And it's, it's all kind of steeped in this victorious language. Uh, I immediately think of... Uh, the song Be Thou My Vision, which is, is one of my favorites. Maybe it is my favorite. And it all sort of builds to verse four of High King of Heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. And uh, if you have been a part of church for any length of time, you could probably think of dozens of songs that, that come to mind um, that have to do with, with, with overcoming and with conquering and, and, and that kind of thing. Another one that comes to mind is, uh, for me, one that was everywhere 15 to 20 years ago, which was a real formative time in my kind of growing into being a young adult life. Um, it was a song called Trading My Sorrows. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with that song. Um, many of you maybe still sing it today, I don't know. Uh, but it's, a lot of it's taken out of, the, out of 2 Corinthians chapter four. It was kind of the ultimate declaration that we won't be kept down, right? We're pressed, but not crushed. We're persecuted, not abandoned. We're struck down, not destroyed. We receive the joy of the Lord and we say yes. We say yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, amen. We're not crushed, we're not abandoned, we're not destroyed. And that's all great. And it's all true, of course, and it fits very well with who we are as a people. We love to win, and quite frankly, we love belonging to a faith that wins. But, and this is what I really wanna ask today, what else does the Bible have to say about winning and losing? Well, this is where we turn to Lamentations. Just to give you um, kind of an over, overview of the book, maybe a pretty poor overview, um, we don't really know for sure who wrote it. It contains five chapters, each uh, a sort of a lament poem. Um, it may have been a compilation of five different poems from different people. It may have been the same person. Uh, eventually, tradition kind of, kind of said that Jeremiah wrote the book. Uh, there, it may or may not be the case. I'm, I'm not gonna linger on that today. It doesn't really matter for our sake today. Um, it was written uh, or compiled during the period of exile, the Babylonian exile. So if, if that's new to you, in the year 586 BC, you had Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel that was still autonomous, um, but for years they had kind of been on a um, kind of a collision course with, with disaster in, in that they were disobeying God and, and um, not, just not fulfilling their end of the covenant that he had made with them. And uh, eventually, in 586 BC, the Babylonians overthrew Judah, which, which contained Jerusalem and the temple, and those were wiped out and the remaining Israelites were, were taken into captivity and um, that began the period of exile. So that's kind of the, the scene um, that we find this book written in. And that is such a, a monumental moment. I don't think, 
that we can really wrap our heads around it. This is sort of Old Testament 101, but for the nation of Israel to have the covenants of Abraham and Moses, to have the lineage of King David, to have the city of Jerusalem, to have the temple of Yahweh himself, um, that was everything to them. That was everything to them. And I, I was trying to think of a comparison for us, and I don't know that I have one, honestly. I think culturally, uh, you know, we have the American flag. Maybe we have some things that, that mean a lot to us uh, as a nation, you know, Arlington National Cemetery, or some things like that that hold a lot of symbolism and a lot of significance for us. Um, and as a church, obviously, we have our Bibles and we have our, our church buildings, but really none of that is, is the same as, as having kind of the seat of the creator God existing in your, your city, your capital city, and having this covenant and this promise with him. And so for that to all go away, uh, I don't think we can really appreciate how just unbelievably shocking and upsetting that was. This was everything to them. And so that's the setting of this book. That's all been taken away, and you have utter, total defeat and loss and shock. Each chapter of this book, each poem, uh, has 22 verses, and it's what's called an acrostic. This is maybe boring, but I think it's significant. It's what's called an acrostic. That means that each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, and that it actually follows the sequence of the alphabet, which has 22 letters. So verse one always begins with the first letter of the alphabet, verse two with the second, and all the way down to verse 22. And each chapter is like that, except chapter three, which has uh, 66 verses. They're arranged in groups of three, so you still have 22 groups of three. Uh, that's maybe a confusing explanation, but why is that important? Um, I believe it demonstrates the intentionality that went into writing this book. This was not some random, emotional, stream of consciousness word salad. This was intentional and very thought out, and that's so important, and I, I want us to rem remember that as we, we go throughout um, the rest of this conversation this morning. The chapters each tend to have their own voices and themes, and we won't get into them except to say they are overwhelmingly sorrowful. I would like today to look at chapter five, um, just to give us a taste of what, what is in the book of Lamentations. I'm gonna read the whole thing, Perhaps that is a mistake, and you guys might check out by the end of it. Uh, it's a little bit long, 22 verses, as, as we heard, but I think it's important to try to really get into the mind and the heart and the feeling of what, what is coming out of these poems. So I'm gonna go ahead and read chapter five. Uh, if you want to read it in, in your Bibles, uh, you can read along with me, um, but I'm gonna read for us today. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We have become orphans without a father. Our mothers are like widows. We have to pay for our drinking water. What, okay. Our wood comes to us at a price. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out. There is no rest for us. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is no one there is no one to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin has become as hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the virgins in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung by their hands. Elders were not respected. Young men worked at the grinding mill and youths stumbled under loads of wood. Elders are gone from the gate. Young men from their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. 
Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes are dim. Because of Mount Zion, which lies in desolate, foxes prowl in it. You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. So, that's discouraging. Everything is upside down. Nothing is as it is supposed to be. And so concludes the book of Lamentations. Each previous chapter echoes uh, much of the same attitude. Almost the entire book is, is really a downer. If you've ever read it, you know that. And it tends to run counter, and this is, this is important, it tends to run counter to the narrative of victory that we talked about earlier, that we see all throughout scripture. So, what do we do with a book like this? Why, why is it even in the Bible in the first place? Well, perhaps we'd say it's included in scripture as uh, a bit of a warning of the consequences of life outside of God's commands, probably. Uh, perhaps we'd say it's included simply to chronicle more of the history of the nation of Israel. Yeah, that, that would make sense. But a little bit ago when I said our cultural attitude of we love to win is one that binds with our faith, right, and then maybe distorts our faith, this is, is what I'm talking about. When, I, when we ask, what do we do with a book like this? I suspect our impulse is to try to read this book through that cultural and faith lens of victory with an attitude of, you know what, I'm an overcomer. I'm more than a conqueror. The negative has no effect on me. And I say this because, in my experience, there is really only one well-known passage out of this book, and that may not be your experience, but, uh, but it certainly is mine. And that passage is in chapter three, it's verses 22 and 23. I'm just gonna read this to us, it comes from the uh, ESV. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Guys, if you're gonna hear a song written from this book, it's going to have those words in it somewhere. If you're gonna listen to a sermon on this book, it's almost certainly going to build to that passage as kind of the climax of it all. We love this passage, even without any context surrounding it, just the words, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. They're, they're beautiful and they're reassuring and it's, it's, they're unique in their place in Lamentations. It's kind of surrounded by, by despair and yet you have this, this declaration of hope. And so when we throw that context in there, we really love it because it's this incredible promise in the middle of all the turmoil. We can persevere. We will not be crushed. We are not without hope. We will overcome. We will see the Lord's mercies again and again and again and again. And to all that, I say hallelujah. And I invite you to do the same. This is a comforting, hopeful, reassuring passage that inspires courage. It, it, it gives us a right perspective um, in the face of unspeakable grief. And it is no surprise that it's sort of the superstar passage of this book, right? But it's not the conclusion of the book. We read the conclusion already, and there's not a lot of hope there. But again, when faced with that reality, I suspect we tend to put our rose-colored glasses back on and we say, well, maybe that's how the book ends, but that's not how the Bible ends. We know that. We know that ultimately some of the people do return to Jerusalem, right? And they rebuild the city and they even rebuild the temple. And, and really we know that 
that the ultimate purpose, uh, we see the ending, is, is in Jesus coming and reconciling the world to, to himself and, and uh, establishing his kingdom here on earth. So, so we see how the story ends. And, and, and really, that's the whole point. That's the steadfast, ceaseless love of God. That's his endless mercy that's new every morning. That's his great faithfulness. That's the victorious ending. And to that, again, I say, hallelujah. But I wonder if we really want to take limitations seriously. I wonder if that's what we'd really say to the writers and to the audience and the readers initially of this book, really. Would we, would we go to them, if we could somehow go back in time, would we say, hey, I've got really, really good news. Just hang in there. I know it's tough, but, but eventually some of your people are gonna return and they're gonna rebuild the Jerusalem and they're gonna rebuild the temple. And, and the person would say, oh, oh, great. So, so we get to see the temple restored in all its glory. Our prayers are answered. And we say, well, no, that's not, not quite how it is. It's not really in, in such beauty and splendor as it was before, um, but it, it still serves its purpose. And, and they say, oh, okay, well, uh, that's good, at least I suppose we must uh, o- overcome our conquerors, right? And we get to, we get to win and, and go back and be our own autonomous people again. Well, no, not exactly. Um, there's always gonna be some foreign power that's, that's ruling over things, um, really all the way up until, well, until Jerusalem and, and the temple are destroyed again. And the person I think would say, are you kidding me? I, <laughs> I thought you said you had good news to tell me. And that's when maybe we step in and say, oh, no, 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 definitely, definitely, this is amazing news. God is going to send his only son to earth to make a way, to be the way, to redeem all things to himself. And they say, oh, well, good, that is amazing. That's what we've been really waiting for all this time. When do I get to see it? Well, you see, if you can just hang in there for like a little bit over five centuries, everything's gonna be okay. Now that was painfully awkward. I apologize for this silly one-man show. It wasn't very good. But I say it because I think it's probably not that far from how we instinctively want to approach this book. We're winners, right? So we've got to find the win in there somehow. But these were real people living through real times. And as much as we want to promise a happy ending, they never really got to see what we can look back on. And we have to consider that. We have to be aware of that. They knew the pain on earth and they never saw the restoration here. Nor did their children, nor did their grandchildren or their grandchildren for generations on. So what do we do with that? What do we do with a book like this? Guys, it's good to read scripture in light of other scripture, obviously. But sometimes that lets us put a little bit too much of our own notions and our own understandings um, into a text as though we were somehow the only ones who were intended to read poems of lament from a broken people that are over you know, two and a half millennia old. And that absolutely distracts us from the core of the message of a book like this. And sometimes, and again, this is super important, sometimes, maybe even a lot of the times, we want, I think, we want to be distracted from the central message of a book like this because it doesn't fit the victorious narrative of our people and our faith. Lamentations is a book that, while it absolutely acknowledges God's faithfulness and mercy, it also expresses shock at the perceived absence of that faithfulness and mercy sometimes. It makes declarations of hope, absolutely, but it gives voice to feelings of hopelessness. It promises God's steadfast love, but it speculates that maybe his anger is actually a little bit stronger right now. 
The original title of the book can be translated simply, Alas, as if it's just a cry of anguish with no real resolution involved. Lamentations expresses things that we're not always comfortable with. Loss, defeat, despair, confusion, dejection. It doesn't give us a neat, tidy ending where God comes through in the clutch and saves the day. The Avengers don't assemble. The Death Star isn't blown up. An entire nation of people for generations are simply expressing this grief. And we call it the Word of God. And it's not just lamentations. There are numerous psalms of lament. Some of them start in despair and end with hope. Some of them uh, start in a little more hopeful voice and then end in despair. Some of them just kind of linger in despair all the time. But they are numerous and they are there and we call them the word of God. We see it in wisdom literature. We see uh, Proverbs really is written for, for instruction for young men. Uh, and it's basically saying, you know what guys, follow these sets of rules. This is the, 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 the formula for righteousness. This is the formula for wisdom. This is the way the world works, just like this. Then we skip to Ecclesiastes. And it's almost like you have one of those guys, those young men, uh, maybe he bought into that when he was younger, tried to live it out his entire life, got to be an old man, and looks around and says, yeah, I, uh, I'm not so sure I really know how hardly any of this works. You know, there's a number of things that, that seem best and good uh, to fear the Lord and to keep his commands is, is best, but a lot of the times, the way people treat each other, the way that the wicked prosper and, and the righteous suffer, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It honestly seems pretty meaningless. And we call that the word of God. Even Jesus, who is himself referred to as the word of God, is labeled by Isaiah as the man of sorrows. Just before he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Let me repeat that again. Before he raised him from the dead, he stood at his grave and he wept. He grieved. He took time to grieve a man that he was moments away from bringing back to life. That says something, I believe, clearly of his attitude toward loss and pain. Before he entered Jerusalem, Jesus lamented over its people and the reality that they would not turn to him even though it was something that he so desperately longed for. He even cried out from the cross something that sounds an awful lot like lamentations, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, were all those things recorded in the Gospels for theological reasons? Yeah, probably so. We, we can, at the very least, we can find theological reasons that they could be there. But we do a massive disservice if we think that that's all they are. I don't know what Jesus thought or felt for sure, but I know what he expressed, and it wasn't always covered in the language of winning. So, what on earth is my point? Why am I going on about this? Uh, is the point, let's just sit around and feel sorry for ourselves and embrace clinical depression? No, that's not, that's not it at all. Uh, but as we said before, following Jesus is a way that often includes holding on to ideas that don't seem to line up perfectly, but they are a vital and necessary part of following him. In our case today, we rejoice in the victory and we also lament in the loss. This is, uh, as I said at the kind of the beginning, an odd sermon to give during Easter season, which is a season uh, marked with life and rejoicing and victory. In fact, um, when this is being live streamed, I'll actually be leading a few songs with with my church in Kansas City uh, over just a video feed. And I can guarantee you, we won't be singing songs about death and despair. We're gonna be singing songs about about hope and new life and and victory and resurrection and, and all that. This is Easter season, right? That's what we're gonna do. But as we all know, in this particular Easter season, 
We are living through a time where the reality of death, of defeat, of sorrow, is kind of just hanging around all the time, isn't it? It's like it's all around the things uh, that, that we encounter day to day in a way that we're probably not used to. Most of us aren't used to anyway. I want to share a quote that was, uh, it was really central to our Easter Sunday service. It comes from an author named Barbara Johnson. She says this, we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. Let me say that again. We are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. I love that. Guys, that has stuck with me. Uh, it's something that I have thought about, honestly, probably every day since. What does that mean for me? How does that apply to my life? How does, what does that look like in my life? Uh, every, all the time, but especially right now, what does that look like in my life? We are people of the resurrection living in a world of death. And we don't just sort of hover right over the surface of that world. We live in it. We're a part of it just like everybody else. And we have to navigate it well. And that means learning to hold on to both ideas at the same time, the life and the death, the rejoicing and the lamenting, not running from one of them in favor of the other. So let me start to build to the whole takeaway here. When we allow our, our victory-loving impulses to totally dictate our faith, uh, when we try so hard to kind of rid our faith of, of defeats and grief, we do, I think, two really harmful things. The first one is this. We often look at all the things that we have and we allow that to dictate our understanding of victory. Essentially, uh, we create a shallow faith that is defined entirely on our circumstances, which, if we're being honest, uh, are usually quite positive. We look around at all that we have and we say things like, oh, we truly are blessed. And I'm sure we are, but maybe not quite in the way that we think. Uh, because we start there, all the, all the things that we have, and then we kind of work backwards from there and uh, decide that following God is only about winning because I'm a follower of God and look at how much I have and how much I've won. And we repeat things like, ah, my God will supply all my needs. And you know what? Why wouldn't we repeat that, right? Most of us, certainly not all of us, but, but I would guess most of us were born into a world through no effort of our own where our needs have almost certainly always been met. We don't even have to hardly think about them. We certainly don't have to consider God's role in providing for them. So of course God will supply our needs. Our needs are always just, it's not a big deal, right? Now this of course ignores the hundreds of millions of people in the world whose needs aren't being met. Uh, I just read the other day that there are, I think it said 790 million people in the world who lack access to, to clean water. What about them? Are they, are they not trusting God enough? Or maybe their understanding of my God will supply all my needs is a little bit different than ours. It's easy to think that God's provision is always demonstrated in things like a happy marriage, uh, a job promotion, a nice home, when we grow up in a world where all or at least some of those things are easily attainable for us. But guys, that doesn't hold up. Not always. When we raise kids into a faith like that, when we disciple people into a faith like that, it doesn't always stand up to real life. In fact, uh, as soon as real life starts to interfere, it starts to crumble. It doesn't overcome the Good Friday reality of our world because the reality is this, and we know this deep down, we know this. Sometimes we lose. Sometimes we don't get the promotion. Sometimes we don't get the house. Sometimes we aren't healed. Sometimes we don't get the relationships. Sometimes our kids hate us. Sometimes our marriage doesn't last. Sometimes our business doesn't make it. Sometimes our children die. Sometimes it seems as if God has forsaken us. 
And when we think that God is only about victory, it can sometimes, I would say oftentimes, lead to a faith that looks more like uh, just something like a superficial kind of American dream than it does like the faith practiced by God's people in scripture and all throughout history. And that's a faith that people are all too eager to give up on and leave when the going gets rough. So that's the first problem I think we create when we, when we focus too much on, on the victory at the expense of, of cherishing the loss. And this is the second harmful thing we do, and this is maybe the most important one to us today. We overlook, or maybe even willfully ignore God in all the dark places in life. There's a story in the Gospels that many of us are familiar with. It's one of a couple stories, actually like it in the Gospels. Uh, it's the story of Jesus calming the storm. Um, what I'm gonna talk about today is kind of pulled from Matthew 8 and Mark 4. They tell the same story. Each one gives us a slightly different account with a, uh, just different details, not a differing account. Um, but just to kind of summarize it, Jesus is on the beach with uh, a number of his followers and he's talking to them and, and a few of them say, uh, Jesus, I, I wanna be with you wherever you're at, no matter what. And he says to them, well, be careful what you wish for, essentially, because uh, the Son of Man has, has nowhere to call, to call home. Uh, then they all get in the boat uh, and they go and sail across the sea. And as, as they are sailing across the sea, eventually a storm blows up. Uh, it threatens all of them. It threatens all their safety. The disciples are panicking um, and, and wondering what's Jesus doing. Well, he's sleeping. They wake him up. He calms the storm. They marvel at uh, who he must be to be doing something like that. And then he gives a little dig at them at the very end, criticizing their faith. There are a few things. Uh, there are a, a few things that make this story uh, relevant to us, I think, today. First of all, the obvious one, we love this story. We love it because we marvel at Jesus' power, right? And that fits kind of our victorious narrative. That makes a lot of sense. And I think we also like the story because we discuss the disciples' lack of faith and we try to decide, um, would we have been scared? Would we have been panicking? Or would we have had the faith to say, it's gonna be okay, we have Jesus with us? You know, who knows? I don't know. That's a conversation uh, I've had and have enjoyed having, kind of a hypothetical. But we tend to skip over, I think, unless it's for dramatic effect, we tend to skip over the despondence of the disciples in that situation. In the Mark 4 account, they actually say to him, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? They're saying, Jesus, don't you care? We're we're about to die, and you don't even seem to care. What's going on? Guys, that sounds very much like something we might have read in Lamentations a little bit ago. And just like with Lamentations, I really think we don't want to sit there. We don't like to sit with the idea that perhaps Jesus was just resting there with them as they were almost perishing. And you know what? I suspect that even if we do focus on kind of their despondence and and their situation, it's really only to make the point that, you know what? Even though it wasn't in the timing they would have expected, uh, Jesus still rescued them. And so it is too with us that the deliverance, the promotion, the victory, the celebration is coming if we can just hold on in the waves a little bit longer. It may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. And sometimes that is absolutely the truth. But sometimes, as we just said earlier, the boat goes down, right? Sometimes he doesn't get up and save the day at the last second. And that's a really hard thing to think about. Here's something that I had never taken um, into account about this story until a couple years ago. 
Uh, in the Matthew 8 account, Jesus addresses a man on the beach who says that he wants to follow him, as we mentioned, and Jesus tells him, uh, foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then three verses later, we see him getting in the boat, sailing into a storm with his disciples and sleeping, laying his head down. So he just says, I have nowhere to lay my head, and then you know, this much further down the page, we see him laying his head down. Why was he doing that? Why was he sleeping? Maybe he was so confident in how his life was laid out that he knew that no harm would befall him until his hour had come, right? Sure. Maybe he knew that the waves and wind would obey him, so he was totally comfortable. Okay. Maybe this was going to be a teachable moment for the disciples and by extension for all of us about the authority he has and the faith that we should be placing in him. Sure. Hey, you know what? Maybe he was just really tired and he wanted to sleep. All of that is likely true and likely a part of it. But maybe there's another connection to be made here. We see the people earnestly saying, Jesus, I want to be with you always. And then we are immediately shown what being with Jesus always can look like. There's a life-threatening storm, and Jesus is just there, resting in it. He's not rushing to stop it, He's resting there. He's not immediately telling them, watch this. He's just resting there. For at least a little bit of the time, he's not, even, he's not taking away the terror. He's not taking away the danger. He's not taking away the almost certain death these guys are facing. He's just resting there. And that is such an important takeaway for us today. As we just said, when we only want to focus on the victory side of life and faith, we miss, or we may miss, where Jesus really is. We don't look for him where he really is. Perhaps we find ourselves in a dark place and we're so conditioned that, uh, you know, that this isn't how it's supposed to be. That we keep looking on the horizon for our hero to swoop in. We keep waiting for Jesus to do as he did in another story, to come walking across the surface of the water and save us. But maybe the place he's really been all along is just sitting beside us, resting there. Guys, we just celebrated Palm Sunday about a month ago, and if there's one thing I have uh, noticed about Palm Sunday sermons and lessons, it's that we tend to spend a lot of time discussing how uh, so many of the Jewish people saw Jesus and, and thought that maybe he was the Messiah, and then in the end, uh, they didn't identify him that way, and they missed him. Um, he wasn't the Messiah that they were looking for. They were looking for a Messiah to, to restore things to their proper order in their kingdom, right? They were looking for a Messiah to make the nation and the people great again. They were looking for a Messiah to run out the oppressors and bring back prosperity and power to the people. And what they got instead was a carpenter's son who said things like, whoever wishes to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And I think we almost always um, pity those people to a degree because we think, oh man, if you guys had just known where to look, you were just a little bit confused about you know, what certain scripture passages meant. You just didn't quite get it. You were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. And it's a good thing we know better, right? It's a good thing we don't do that. Except I wonder sometimes if maybe we don't do a pretty similar thing here. Maybe we have found ourselves at times in a sinking boat and maybe the situation is so dire that we finally have to admit that yep, this thing is actually sinking but we so strongly believe as we just said that Jesus is found only in the winning, he is found only in the rescue, he's found only in the victorious triumph 
that we keep waiting for a Messiah who's going to make it all be better in the end, who's going to run our oppressors out of here, a Messiah who's going to make our lives great again. But instead, we get a carpenter's son who tells us that saving your life involves losing it. Yeah, that's not the Messiah I think we're looking for a lot of times. And maybe we never really find him when he was right next to us all along, just resting in the storm. You guys, even at our most honest, when we're, we're forced to accept the idea that, okay, I guess sometimes boats do sink, we still seek to sidestep it to a degree, just like we do when we read a book like Lamentations. We need to be able to claim victory in the end, right? We love the story of, of the martyr singing hymns on the way to, to his death. Um, we don't love the, the circumstances of the story, obviously, but we love the, the courage and the, just the, the confidence and the rejoicing that we see in that story. What we probably don't consider as often is the story of the martyr's family, his community, his church, his children. We don't love to consider the permanent damage that's been done to their lives because of the evil of somebody else. But the question is, is God present in the grief of the family any less than he is present in the courage of the martyr? Of course not. But it just doesn't feel like a win, and so it's hard for us to see him there. We love the testimony of, of a family or a marriage that went through years of awful times but came out on the other side renewed and stronger than ever. We celebrate that because God is surely with that couple. He's surely with those people, right? At the same time, we maybe only quietly whisper about a marriage that went through years of awful times and then ended. The marriage where one or even both spouses have an ugly scar in their hearts from what they endured. That's not the story we like to tell. But the question is, is God present in the pain of the broken couple any less than he is present in the story of the restored couple? Of course not. But it just doesn't feel like a win. And so it's hard for us to see him there. And guys, the, the examples here are endless and I won't keep giving you a bunch of them. To deny losing is to miss Jesus sometimes. Going back to the song I mentioned earlier, Trading My Sorrows, we love that we're pressed but not crushed, right? We love that we're persecuted but not abandoned. We love that we are struck down but we're not destroyed. But I suspect when we sing a song like that, we have a hard time considering that as, uh, as something worth saying yes to when we realize that it's also saying we're still pressed. We're still persecuted we're still struck down. That's not something we really want to say yes to, is it? But if we try so hard uh, to force that reality out, we run the risk of missing Jesus where he is. Sometimes our Messiah rescues us from our troubles. Sometimes he rests with us in our troubles. Let's be sure that we look for him in both places. And let's be sure that we allow and encourage others to do the same. I'm sure there are some of us who have the personality uh, maybe the lifestyle, and maybe really even the faith that says, you know what, I really genuinely, truthfully don't need to cry out in despair. Uh, no matter what, the truth of God and eternity and my place with him will always be enough to overwhelm those negative feelings. And to those of you who are like that, I would say, great. I, honestly, that is, that is wonderful and that's, that's fantastic. And I would say uh, as well that I think at, at some point in my life, I might have come close to saying the same thing about myself. Um, but then my circumstances changed and I realized that's just not always true of me. It was true of me when things were comfortable and when things kind of made sense, but those circumstances didn't last. Regardless, I am also sure that there are some of us who have been forced into places of such deep darkness and such pain and such loss 
that to try to listen to those who only speak the language of victory is, is almost a pointless exercise. I think maybe those people can relate a little better to a book like Lamentations. I think they can relate to a group of disciples better, a group who wonders why Jesus doesn't seem to care that they're perishing. I think they can relate better to a savior who, while dying, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For those living that reality, I hope you are able to take at least some comfort in a Messiah that understands your pain and is sitting right next to you. And for the rest of us, in between those two extremes, I believe this Easter season is such an important one to consider these things. We are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. We are people of the resurrection who celebrate new life and who always hold to a heavenly hope. We are people who find Jesus in the celebration. We are also people residing in a world of death who are rocked by it, shaped by it, just the same as everybody else is. And as long as we are here, we are people who find Jesus in the lamenting. To be a follower of Christ is to have to engage in contrasting ideas sometimes, to be willing to hold the strength and the weakness together, to recognize the life and the death, the rejoicing and the lament. To be a follower of Christ means allowing ourselves and each other to express what is in our hearts when we are pressed by the reality of this Good Friday world, as we are, so many of us are right now. We're pressed by the reality of this world knowing that as Easter people, we may still see Jesus, the man of sorrows and the risen son of the living God, the name above every other name and the suffering servant, the lion and the lamb. We may still see him sitting there with us, occupying the space where rejoicing and lamenting come together perfectly. And it is my prayer that we find and share true lasting hope in that. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Difficult though it may be uh, for us to understand at times. I thank you for your promises that you are faithful, that your mercies never cease. And God, I thank you for the comfort that, uh, that I find at least in the, the notion that, that lament, that, that expressing sorrow, that expressing confusion, that that suffering uh, as we engage through loss, that those things are as much a part of, of you, they're as much a part of your son, they're as much a part of your kingdom uh, here on earth as is the joy and the rejoicing and the hopefulness. God, may we find you, may we seek you in all things. Hold us close and remind us of who you are. It's in your name that we're here. Uh, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.